Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm so excited to share today's interview with Brent Bishore with you. This is part one of a two-part series. We are covering his road into the world of investing and how his early days as an entrepreneur inform the investment decisions that he makes now. Brent is occupying a space within the world of investing that does not get as much attention as the worlds of IPOs, venture capital, private equity, and cryptocurrencies these days. But it is fascinating. And I first came across it when Brent was a guest on the Invest Like the Best podcast almost a year ago. And upon hearing him for the first time, I knew I had to have him on the show one day. So I trekked all the way out to his headquarters in Columbia, Missouri to record this conversation with him in addition to a much longer conversation that took place before and after this interview. I learned a ton and I know you're going to as well. So please, please sit back, enjoy my conversation with Brent Bishore. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Well, thank you so much for hosting me here, and thank you so much for coming to my show, Brent. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I think that the best way to make your work and your business accessible and understandable for my audience is to perhaps use a little compare and contrast between the terms private equity and venture capital sure. and, and compare those worlds to what you're doing with adventures. Yeah. So, so private equity and venture capital are, um, you know, they're obviously worlds apart. They deal in, both of them are private equities in the sense of you're buying small equity stakes or large equity stakes, depending on the situation, in private companies. So sort of private equity as an overarching umbrella certainly covers some of what we do. Well, actually, to be honest, private equity encompasses all of what we do. The term private equity, though, typically comes with you raise a fund and you deploy that fund over a period of, call it, three years. And then you harvest that that fund over the course of, say, seven years, maybe up to 10 years, and return that capital plus a return back to your investors. And so um, that's very different than what we do in, in the sense of how it's done, at the size it's done. It's a very different rhythms, very different interests, very different ways of uh, creating value. And then venture capital is very, very different from what we do in the sense of you know venture, you're taking a minority stake in a high growth, typically high growth company, you're trying to get a multiple of... Uh, you know, your money back over, over a call it 10 year time horizon. So you're looking for a high failure rate, small success rate, but those successes are, you know, sort of following a power law distribution. And so what I would say is, you know, we, we more closely mirror private equity in, in the sense of, you know, we're buying uh, usually a majority stake, not always, but a majority stake in, in most of the situations. And, you know, we're buying them from private, closely held business owners, which, you know, private equity does. The time horizon in what we do is very different. And the way in which we go about it's very different. So we like to tell people, you know, we have no intention of ever selling an investment when we make it. You know, so if functionally our time horizon is infinity. Now, we obviously, everyone's going to the same place, right? No one gets out of this life alive. So we do have to sell at some point, um, but we never go in with an intention of selling. 
and we're not returning money back to investors. There's no pressure to create a return over a certain you know defined time horizon. So it's functionally a very different uh, mentality. It allows us to go after things that are very different. And I can go into you know those details, you know, depending on how interested your your audience is in in the, in the nitty gritty. I, th- I think we'll build on that a little bit, but I, I really want to build context for people about how you get even into this world sure. in, in the first place. But just to uh, hone a little bit further on, on your philosophy, and I, I'm not going to ask you to, to brag about results or numbers or anything like sure. that, because that's not really the point of the, the conversation. But uh, in terms of a philosophy or a mindset that would guide the investing decisions of a firm um, to compare with a venture capital firm like Andreessen Horowitz, they say, everything is changing. So we're going to invest in these technologies or notions that are going to be the sweeping changes uh, versus, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's Berkshire Hathaway that says, well, these things really aren't changing anytime soon. So we feel really comfortable and confident in investing in these, or perhaps a 3G, which says, you know, these companies are bloated and we need to kind of cut some expenses and then slash and burn and, and improve our profitability. How would you if you can distill it into something succinct or, or more broadly explain the philosophy that you're taking to the businesses that you look to invest in or partner with? It's a great question. I, I would say that our overarching philosophy is we want to invest in things that are enduring human need. So if I think about the companies we're currently invested in, the companies that, that we have sort of on the horizon, all of them are providing a function that people have had for a very fulfilling a need, I should say, that people have had for, for a really long time, and, and we think they'll continue to have for a really long time. So to give you an example, one of our portfolio companies is the nation's largest direct-to-consumer pool builder. So swimming pools, right? And I mean, we're, we're digging holes in the ground and filling them with concrete. It's a lot more complicated than that, and it's gorgeous, the work they do. But the functionally, I mean, what, what, what we're banking on there is, you know, until people stop dipping their bodies in water for pleasure, like, we'll, we'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, what's interesting though is comparing, you know, what we do to, you know, venture capital and Andreessen Horowitz or 3G, everyone is functionally doing the same thing. They're trying to predict the future and they believe they can predict the future better than other people. And so they're trying to get into situations where their predictions of the future are more accurate rather than less accurate. So Andreessen Horowitz is a good example of, yeah, they, they have this philosophy. They do think the world is changing at a ma- much faster rate than n- most people would consider to be changing. So how do they you know, create value in that? Well, they back companies that they believe are causing the change in the world, right? Or that are going to be able to piggyback on the back of that change that they see in the world. And most of the time they're dead wrong right? But a couple times based on the entry price they get at and the growth rate, they're right. And the power lock distribution kicks in. And, and you know, I think Andreessen Horowitz will probably, you know, generate decent returns uh, specifically for that firm. And so it's all just about, you know, how do you overlay your sort of overarching philosophy with, you know, being able to accurately predict the future through getting into situations that, that will reflect that. So I, I think that where we can go that can be really helpful for particularly a lot of the, the young ambitious people who listen to this show is getting into the nitty gritty of how one develops their own investment philosophy and what information or resources or processes you've gone through to develop your own and and what is required to, to reach a point where you can do that with 
any degree of confidence. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's a big thing to unpack. That is incredibly big. Um, so, I mean, how do you learn is really the question, right? So I think the best learning is is from experience, right? And hopefully it's positive learning, not negative learning, right? You know, books can serve as a uh, can serve a great purpose. I think there's there's a challenging philosophy out there that you can learn everything you need to learn from books. And I think it really doesn't serve people very well. You know, you can read about doing a deal. Uh, you can read about making an investment until you've put your money on the line, until you've gotten the muscle memory of what it feels like, until you've hit your face on the pavement a few times. It's really, really challenging to make good decisions. And so what I would say is getting your footing into an area you know, great way to do this, you know, read blog posts, you know, read person who's in their Twitter feed if they have one, you know, read books about the topic, knowing that really the only thing that that book's going to do is give you a super broad framework for what to watch out for, how somebody else would think through the problem, or at least how they want to present to you how they think through the problem, right? Like I, I'm super skeptical now reading most people's biographies or memoirs or, you know, anything like that, because, you know, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, right? Or lunch yesterday. Like, I, I don't know. I, let alone if I'm trying to go back and recount something that happened 40 years ago with any level of detail. I, you know, I have no doubt that people aren't trying to lie, but it's just the, the memory of what the important factors were and like how it all went down. I, I'm not confident that uh, those are very accurate, right? So are you more likely then to seek out a biography that's like written by someone else than an autobiography? You know, yeah, to some degree. I mean... Although I think that it's impossible. I mean, if, if somebody wrote a biography of your life, right? Like, it wouldn't be accurate. Yeah. Same thing for me, right? So I, you, you get an approximation, and, and everyone's trying to write a good story. I mean, most of the time, you know, you're eating a meal and distracted with something and crossing the street and in traffic. And, you know, I mean, it's just we, we live fairly boring lives, right? The norm is sort of a boring mundane. And so, you know, to, to only hit on the high points... And to try to get those accurate, it, it like it's it's without the context around of like normal and ordinary life. So if you're going to read about a Rockefeller or something like that, who you know, how did he decide to get into the oil well in Pennsylvania to you know that kicked off the empire and you know all that? It's like I have no doubt that maybe he was at some random cousin of his wife's that he met, and they were like, hey, I think there's some oil out in Pennsylvania, and he's like, cool, let's go out, you know. That's not how it's represented, and maybe it's completely accurate. I just have high skepticism that what actually happens is somehow reported back with any degree of accuracy. Gotcha. So let's go back a little bit in terms of developing the philosophy or the virtues or the principles that would inform an investing decision. Um, I, I do know you're influenced a lot by Buffett and Munger, but given how often they're reported on, um, are there there other investors that you've found that you not necessarily are trying to emulate, but have stolen ideas from, or like, I really like the way they, they frame some of these types of decisions? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll hit on the highlights that most people, I mean, you know, Singleton, Henry Singleton, Teledyne, I mean, was a huge influence on, you know, the way I thought about creating value. Um, I would say Howard Marks was another really big influence on how I um, think about risk and sort of probabilistic thinking. Gosh, I mean, I, I've studied all the, you know, uh, you know, whether it's Soros and, I mean, 
When did you start doing that? Oh gosh, when did I start doing um, specifically investors? I would say when I was in my late twenties. Late twenties. Okay. Right. Uh, maybe mid mid to late twenties. I mean, I got interested in how other people allocated resources when I had a few resources to allocate. You know, it's really in, in theory before then it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, and so before then, I was much more interested in value creation through entrepreneurship and operating company. And so I spent a lot of my time doing those. Let's talk a little bit about what those entrepreneurial endeavors were, if you're comfortable talking about both successes and failures associated with that. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So the first endeavor, uh, I was getting my law degree, my MBA, had a friend, his wife, we were out having dinner one night and she said, I want to start a company and it was an event marketing company. So this is in 2007. I don't know if you were in the in the flow back then, but back then uh, event marketing was like sort of the avant-garde thing creating experiences around brands and okay, and this is pre-social media, right? So I said, well, that sounds really cool. And I was sort of desperate at that point to not be focused on school anymore. Um, I was just, to be frank, I was just burned out on, on the, the environment of, of learning. And I was, you know, I, I wish I had a different attitude back then. If me now could go back, I would learn a lot more and I would treat people very differently. But, um, you know, back then I was uh, young and dumb and arrogant, uh, which is a, uh, a dangerous combination and thought I knew enough and was just chomping at the bit to sort of play real life instead of play a game. And so I said, you know, let's let's do it. She said, well, great, you'll, you'll be the business side. I still don't know what that means. And, you know, it was just, a, it, it, it was a great lesson in how you would design a really awful business. So a lot of the things that I've done, I basically, the framework of how I built to date is I do something and if it goes well, I figure out, try to figure out why it went well. And if it goes poorly, I try to figure out why it went poorly, knowing that you can't perfectly fit the curve. Um, and then just do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And when you sort of get into something, you see a new world open up to you. And so I got into this world event marketing. Uh, it was a sub-segment of marketing. Didn't like the business for a variety of reasons. Incredibly labor-intensive, very locally driven, very low perceived value. Just really challenging business to make work, to scale. Really hard sell, lumpy revenues. I mean, all the things that, that make for a challenging, uh, challenging business. And um, But that led us into seeing sort of the broader marketing space. And I realized that some of the agencies we were working with through that company were getting paid a lot more to do stuff that seemed a lot more fun. And naturally we kind of said, well, why don't we do more of that and less of this? And so that led into launching an agency, which is also a very challenging business. And, but it's a less challenging business than event marketing. And so got into that and I'm trying to get back to my mindset. I mean, per our previous conversation about trying to go back in time, right? This yeah. is, uh, you know, over a, well, over a decade ago, we talked about it, and about a decade ago that, that really getting into it. And that led, you know, into these, these really interesting little niches that we found. So we hired a great guy who was a film fanatic, very talented, uh, had gone to film school and we hired him to kind of come on and be like the creative guy on the team. And he was doing some graphic design and we were doing some video work for clients. And he said, Hey, there's this new camera technology that's coming out called Red One Digital Cinema Technology. And it was the founder of Oakley Sunglasses dumped a boatload of money into 
trying to develop a film camera, digital film camera, that looked as good as a digital SLR still camera. And he did it. And it cost him a ton of money. And I think we were the first commercial application in the country of that technology. And all of a sudden, we started making money and making more of it. And it was easier and it was a lot more fun. And so we started doing more of that. And we turned into this like interesting digital film studio doing high-end commercials. We were able to pick up some pretty large accounts because we could come in and drop their costs dramatically. In fact, we learned huge lessons on how to price things. We lost, I mean, one of the most painful early on in my life experiences was we lost out on a huge project because we priced it like 40% cheaper than everyone else. You know, supply and demand, you think that's like a great thing, right? You're going to 40% cheaper. Why would you not go with us? Look at our quality, right? And they said, we just don't believe you. So we kicked you out. And we lost the we lost the account. We lost the the job, which was you know multiple hundred thousand dollars because we priced it too cheaply. And I said, I, I can raise the price, you know. And they were like, No, we just don't believe that you can get the job done because of the price. Even though we had a great reel and we had been you know shown it. Yeah. Anyway, so just you know repeatedly learned a lot of lessons about you know how to bring people on to an organization, what to look for in hiring, what traits we valued over other traits how to structure an organization, what promises you should and shouldn't make. I mean, I, I hit my face on the pavement over and over and over again. When you're looking at potential bids now, I don't, I don't know how often that's a part of what you're doing, but do you feel like you use that similar type of framework where you'll disqualify an, a company because they underprice? Or is that... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, for, uh, unfortunately, the way that I think almost everyone operates, I certainly do, is, you know, you associate somebody, the price somebody's willing to, to, to ask for with the quality of their work. And so, heck yeah, for sure. If somebody comes along and, and we're, it's a really important job. So if it's a, if it's not an important job, you're going to go the lowest bidder. Right. Right. But if it's an important job, like you probably don't want to go with like the discount LASIK. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Like I, I, I don't know anybody. In fact, there's a sign in Southern Missouri. I was, uh, I was driving there a while back and it said like, you know, discount LASIK eye surgery only like, I think it was like $1,100 an eye or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, does anybody actually do that? Even though I'm sure their quality is as high as, you know, 5,000 or $10,000 an eye. I have no idea what it costs, but like, that's not something, I mean, your, your vision is not something that you want to sort of get at a discount. Um, and so I think that's, you know, sort of the mentality. I mean, you know, when the stakes are high quality matters and unfortunately it's really hard to compare apples to apples. Gotcha. So did the agency reach a point where it was starting to cash flow, and you now had the assets to then go and invest or or make capital allocation decisions? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, the the agency started, it's early, right? But it started becoming successful, right? I mean, it's, it's a definitions of success matter, right? I mean, uh, it wasn't like we were rolling large, but but yeah, I mean, we were, uh, we grew the team very fast. We brought on some really nice accounts and we started performing and it was a nice start to a, to a business. You know, I think it made me realize, and you can talk about the quality of business models matter, right? You know, we did great work for some clients and they kicked us in the teeth and we did terrible work for other clients and they praised us and gave us more money. And I think that that fundamental disconnect between the quality of work that we felt like we were producing and the outcomes, super frustrating. That's one of the things I like least about sort of the artistic driven beauty pageant businesses is kind of a way you could describe them, right? Which marketing definitely fits in that. Some types of marketing, I mean, obviously lead gen's different in some degree. I mean, but like you don't, it's really challenging to get yourself in a situation where clients are like, no, 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 I want a lighter shade of red for that, right? You're like, 
no. And why are we talking about this? And we're all, you know, and we're all losing money as a result of this, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, that learned a lot about, you know, learned a lot about just what businesses like at different levels. And sort of ironically, what we learned was the bigger the client, the easier that were they, uh, the easier they were to deal with. The larger the client, certainly the more profitable they were. Um, the larger the client, the more respectful they were. And and this never made sense to me, right? Because I'm like, that's that should be the opposite, right? That should be the harder clients to, to to work with. But intuitively now, if you think about it, there's a selection bias that if a company is small and stays small, there's probably a reason why they're small. And a lot of times the reason why they're small is because the people that are, you know, at the helm of the company have some challenging personality traits. And working with those people makes your life challenging more challenging. I mean, we all have challenging lives, but more challenging than it would be otherwise. And so uh, that's been another kind of hard-earned lesson that I've learned over the years is, is you know, to really look at the selection bias that you're getting into in every situation. But yeah, to answer, to go back, uh, answer your question about the, um, you know, the, the agency was doing well. We were having uh, a lot of fun. It was also a lot of pain. And um, then I had an opportunity to make my first acquisition. And uh, we still own that company today. It's called Media Cross. Wonderful team, uh, providing incredibly valuable work. They're a military recruitment firm. Their largest client is the United States Navy. They um, recruit all of the civilian mariners that resupply the ships that never come into port. It's a really, really cool job. It's meaningful work, great team. And, you know, we're lucky enough to come across it at the right time under the right circumstances, made the acquisition, and that kind of opened my eyes to well, a whole nother world, right? I mean, it was sort of entrepreneurship through acquisition. I mean, I felt every much as as much of an entrepreneur in that world as I did starting my own company from scratch. It just was a 26-year head start with some debt. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, got into that. And, uh, you know, I think at that point, anytime you get into something and it goes well, you think it's easy. And I've learned that anytime I think something's easy or anybody tells me something's easy, uh, they either got lucky or they don't know what they're talking about, right? And uh, I got lucky. And so then really spent a number of years kind of looking at the opportunity cost between acquisition and and starting companies. And yeah, fast forward to today. And, you know, we really focus on exiting closely held businesses, uh, the owners of those, and and really trying to help successfully transition their legacy and uh, improve the quality of those employees' lives and improve the quality of the community. which really try to take a sort of holistic look at everything from vendors and customers and making sure it's a you know sort of win 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 all the way around. And there's a really important component to that that we can break apart, which is what makes a company a good acquisition target is that they're not overly reliant upon this owner who you are buying out or who who might be leaving the company, and the the nature of the business that you are running so you are not i mean just in this limited time together like you are not out there actually operating the recruiting business and the other no. portfolio companies no, 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 no. and i'm, I'm curious if those you people can, are way more talented than i am <laughs> I, i'm curious if you can can illuminate that a little bit further in terms of i don't know if there's like a hard line or a line in the sand of where you're stepping in and changing things versus this is working like let it let them do their thing. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different components of what you just asked. I mean, so one is what do we look for in a business? And I think that may lead into sort of how we interact with the businesses. Right. So what we look for is a business that would be successful without us. That's sort of the baseline. 
So if, if we need to be involved to make the business successful, it's just not a situation that's going to bear fruit for anybody. So things we look for are, you know, a competitive advantage, some sort of mechanism that they've developed over time. It could be proprietary processes. It could be a, a patent. It could be their brand or their reputation or they're somehow entrenched in their market position. So some people call this moat right? Which is, it's really challenging. I mean, in most cases, I, I don't even think a, an owner of a company could tell you what their competitive advantage. They're like, I don't know, it just works. We do, we do what we do, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to analyze well, what about the business is allowing them to earn, you know, technically high uh, returns on invested capital over a long period of time is, you know, sort of technical definition of competitive advantage. I mean, how that plays out over time is, you know, how do they make money and how can they reinvest that money back into the business over a period of time to make more money? And, so we're trying to figure that out. Uh, and, and a lot of times we can't and we deduce that the business is really the outgrowth of the personality of the primary owner or owners and that if they left, the business would implode. And I think that's what you see most of the time in smaller companies is that happens. Um, it goes through a period of flourishing under a, a specific personality that built the company a specific way that works. Uh, they probably didn't intentionally build it that way, but it just sort of evolved over time. And then when you try to transition it to somebody else's ownership, it just it's just very rare, very difficult. So we try to go and, and find a, a competitive advantage that we can either immediately separate from the ownership that is that is selling or over a period of time transition that competitive advantage to someone else or to some other group of people and sort of diversify it is how we think about it of course we got to get a fair price um, you know we want to de-risk the deal in in a number of different ways um, but but really how that leads post-close is you know our motto is we want to help if we can be helpful uh, otherwise like let people who are the experts do their job I mean, it would be pure insanity if somehow I decided that I would come into a swimming pool builder, for instance, and tell them how to build a better swimming pool. Like these people have been doing it for 30 plus years. They're amazing at it. They built a great business. Like it, it would be pure insanity if I came in and thought I could, could do a better job. I think where we come in, there's a governance aspect. So obviously we want to make sure that things are properly accounted for, information's flowing appropriately, you know, just sort of the standard, you know, maybe called business hygiene. And then, you know, occasionally we might have a good idea. Uh, occasionally we might help question maybe a questionable idea that they might have. Um, so really it's, you know, all working together. We're all on the same team. We're trying to work together over a very long time horizon to, you know, create uh, an environment of success. And sometimes it works better than others. Um, and it depends on the business model and the people and how everything kind of comes together. But it's very different how we think about that than, a like I said, traditional private equity. So we're not coming in and saying, okay, what can you cut? And how fast can we grow? And we can like, we step on the gas and bring a bunch of resources. We're typically saying, let's stabilize. Anytime there's a transaction, there's going to be anxiety. And rightfully so. We want to have people feel comfortable that we're going to treat them well. We want to stabilize the, the employee base. We want to stabilize the customer base. We want to, to, to develop good relationships uh, with vendors. We want you know, just have the, the company sort of go to a new normal. Uh, and then over time, we might, you know, be making some uh, decisions in concert with the leadership of the company. It's never that we're forcing, a, a, you know, an, a, an opinion down. In fact, we, we often ask them, you know, what is something that we can invest in today that we wouldn't see fruit for maybe 10 years? 
right? So we're trying to do very long time horizon. We're trying to help pull them uh, out of the day-to-day -day operations and sort of make longer strategic decisions. And then really, um, you know, everyone goes to work, right? Like my job's not to operate the company. And if I did that, that would screw up their job. And if they relied on me to operate the company, it would screw up their life. And, you know, it's like sort of symbiotic, right? Um, we try to treat them extremely well. I mean, how we treat the leaders of our companies is how they're going to treat their staff. And how you treat your staff is how you're, they're going to treat their customers. It's only logical to me that if you treat people well, and, and again, we don't always nail this, right? Like we're flawed. Like we have plenty of shortcomings, but we try. We're really trying, um, and we're trying to treat people fairly and consistently and be a, a kind voice in their life and be a thoughtful helper at times and genuinely just try to, you know, we're all going to live life. We try to do it together and in a way that uh, lets them do their thing. We do our thing and sort of meet in the middle. Hey, thank you so much for listening to part one of the conversation with Brent. Part two is going to be dropping tomorrow, so make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can check it out and enjoy. We get into the nitty-gritty of the leaders that Brent entrusts his companies to, the way he thinks about relating to his fellow man, and at the very end, we get some of his thoughts on cryptocurrency. So a lot of exciting things coming down the pipe. Hope that we will see you back here tomorrow. I'm going deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.